Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and that Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to elders and custodians past, present and emerging and to those of the lands that this podcast reaches. As I embark on this process of speaking and listening, I'm doing so in the home of one of the longest, continuous cultures of oral storytelling on the planet. And it kind of forces you to really wrestle with the reality that identity and culture specifically is not like a dead thing. It is, it's as ongoing and as evolving as you are in trying to define your own culture in, you know, here and now. Hi, I'm Ty Snaith, and this is A World of One's Own, a series of conversations with women and non-binary artists I respect and admire. In each of these conversations, we attempt to break down the how and why of what we make. Together, we look at physical processes and how they relate not only to outcomes, but also connect to the unconscious or non-visual parallels and needs in our lives. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Atong Atem, a strong and vibrant voice rising in Melbourne's visual culture scene. Atong makes work that not only crosses but ignores many boundaries, from photographic portraiture to self-portraiture, makeup, costuming, to global community-engaged work and accidental fashion photography. She's also becoming an articulate voice of the broader South Sudanese community. We talk about what it means to grow up between cultures, or as she says, to build your identity from scraps. Atong reflects on themes of home, place and belonging, and how she expresses this continual search in her work. I've never really called myself any one thing just because it feels kind of scary to limit myself in that way Mm. so for the most part when it comes to like writing bios I generally generally refer to myself as a writer artist or artist writer because I feel like those two elements of what I do kind of inform one another so it's Mm. really important for me to kind of have that as a base and then every kind of branch stems from the writing and the art together. Well, that's good. Yeah. I did have you down as artist and writer. Thank so. you. Because <laughs> it, did, it did sort of spring to mind. I think your voice is equally important in terms of what you're achieving as your image. And often your work uses your own self-image, right? Yes. Um, and, I mean, when I sort of sat down and thought, okay, what is the Tong's work about without reading a bio? It, for me, it seems to be about sort of visibility mm. um, and, and not just of yourself but of other people in your community or people that you want to make more visible than they already are. Is that something you think about or is, it, is that getting it wrong? Yeah, definitely it is getting it right. Um, mostly that visibility or lack of visibility mm. was a real launching had for me in terms of discovering my own voice as an artist and a writer Um, and a lot of I guess why I do what I do or like why I choose to um, you know lean towards portraiture or lean towards photography or lean towards self-portraiture comes from that I guess journey to finding yourself reflected or myself reflected and not finding it and then kind of being you know if you 
if 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 you want something done right, do it yourself. <laughs> so I do it all myself. In That's terms a good way to look at it. Presenting myself and presenting my community. Yeah. And so is it because you don't, I mean, is it because you think you can trust yourself the most to get you to to put your cross right or is it because you don't trust other people? Definitely both. (laughs) More so not trusting other people more so than trusting myself because I don't trust myself. Mm. I think a lot of my work is about that lack of trust in self because I guess inherently we as individuals are informed by the environment we live in and grow up in. Um, and me being a South Sudanese, you know, black young woman who grew up on the central coast of Australia, my environment didn't speak to or about me. Mm-hmm. So I have no trust in myself because, you know, I'm informed by this place that doesn't recognise my existence. Um, oh, that's tough. It is. I don't <laughs> see it as tough. It just kind of is. Yeah. Um, and every time I go back to the Central Coast, like I did this weekend. Whereabouts on the Central Coast? Uh, we grew up in Wyoming for the most part uh-huh. and Narara. It's a kind of um, lower Hunter Valley region, okay. I suppose. Mm-hmm. I thought that I grew up in a big city because my family's from hmm. South Sudan and I spent my early childhood in Kenya. Wow. So when we moved to the Central Coast, it was like, oh, big city. Yeah, <laughs> look, there's a cinema here. We even have an ice rink. Cool. And then... I eventually moved to Newcastle for uni and I was like, oh, no, this is the big city. <laughs> and then I eventually moved to Sydney and I was like, oh, no, no, this is <laughs> the big city. Like it's just this constant like, you know, my worldview just gets larger and larger. Um, uh, so yeah. it's so interesting that sort of perspective, I guess, of self and where you, you know, where you come from but then from the outside, like yeah. other people's perspective of you and I guess growing up and trying to reconcile those two things, what you think you are, what other people see you as. Yeah. Um, but I did read in an article um, that you, the, the term TCK or third culture kid, is that something that you, you know, can you talk about that? Because I'd never heard that term before, but it, I found it really interesting. Well, I guess I gravitated towards it a lot more then than I do now, mostly because it kind of was... I felt like, um, so basically third culture kid conceptually is the idea of a person who grows up between cultures, meaning like their family comes from one particular culture, um, Mm -hmm. but they're kind of plucked out of that and placed in a completely different separate culture. And in my case, my family's South Sudanese and we moved to Australia when I was five, Mm -hmm. so grew up in this culture. Um, And I guess at the time I was really looking for a really comprehensive term that could speak to my experience really broadly. Rather than just like diaspora or something that, because you don't remember that original culture. And because there's a sense of, um, I don't know if this is totally what it's about, but to me the third culture kid identity kind of speaks to like that continual search for you know, home and place and all of that. It's about that kind of liminality that that exists in that soup. Yeah, and it exists here with a lot of people. I mean, uh, as Australians, we're all, unless you're Indigenous Australian, we're all some kind of stage right. of, you know, like I guess I'm like a seventh culture kid from, right. from that far away. But, um, I mean, I think of people like Mojo Juju who mm. recently that incredible song that she wrote that's about, you know, knowing these words that are attached to, like, her father but then not knowing anything about that culture or not even knowing the language or mm. um, it must be such a um, kind of not not confusing is not the right word, is it? It's kind of just challenging because how far do you go into those separate cultures right. and, and where do you feel like you belong? Well, I feel like um, challenging maybe even isn't it. It's like maybe, 
you're forced to, without realising, train these different muscles, <laughs> you know, that maybe other people have less trained just by virtue of, you know, wanting to survive and exist. Mm. Um, and in terms of, you know, like with Mojo referring to these little snippets of culture mm. that she's gotten over time, I feel like that's a really poignant way of describing it in that you're forced to build this kind of eternal structure of identity mm. from scraps almost, you mm. know, um, without even realising that that's, that's what that is. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily sad. Um, there comes a lot of beauty from that because... It's quite robust, really, right. isn't it? Yeah. And it kind of forces you to, um, I guess, really wrestle with the reality that identity and culture specifically is not like a dead thing. It is... It's as ongoing and as evolving as you are in trying to define your own culture in, you know, here and now. Yeah. Um, so there's like, it just is. Like, it's very difficult <laughs> to describe it as positive or negative when it just is your mode of existence. Yeah, but you very much, you do have a very sort of positive um, outlook around you and your background and, and your people, you know, like yeah. you, you put it forward quite optimistically and I think people are really drawn to that with you mm. and particularly your um, images of self are quite kind of playful but they're, as you said, like there's a little bit of doubt that sort of sneaks through but, I mean, mm. that would only, if that wasn't there it would just be too weird. But <laughs> that I think people are drawn to that sort of, you're, you're almost like a sort of natural leader or something. But is that... I am an Aries. So. <laughs> there you go. I'm a Leo, so, you know, we either get along really well or not. But, um, yeah, but I think that that must be something, I mean, before we came on air, just talking about that responsibility of being uh, like a leader or a figurehead or something that you seem to be finding yourself falling into, is that, you know, like that must be hard to maintain. Do you dip in and out of that or do you just kind of not think about it too much? Or I feel like it's... Interesting, because uh, I don't think, I feel like, oh. <laughs> you don't have to talk about it. No, I, I can. I'm just trying to find the words, I mm. guess. Um, I don't know. It feels really not that to me because my from, from my perspective, it's like my community, and by that I mean specifically like young black women or even more specifically young South Sudanese yeah. women here in Melbourne, we kind of work as this big living, growing organism and it doesn't feel like, you know, because we all kind of lead, I suppose, in different directions. Um, hmm. So it kind of feels more, I, I feel organic like I've got, or something. Yeah, more, yeah, more organic and it's less, it feels less like Manufactured there's them. an eye on me. There's, yeah, but, th but there is. Which makes it difficult when I come to terms, yeah, because yeah. often I'll do things with with the idea that no one's watching. Yeah. And then, oh, Shit. Oh shit, heaps of yeah. people watching. <laughs> but things like, I mean, you must be aware of it to some extent because like the recent project you did, say, with Mecca, which mm. is a fairly big public project and with a really mainstream and mainly kind of like white yeah. audience really. Yeah. Like I think that that's just pure genius. I mean, that's, that's not something that I would want to do because it doesn't really suit my agenda. But for me, when I saw that you'd done that, I was like, wow, that's so cool mm. because it does put you in that position where you become... I don't know. I guess you're just building this really, really strong platform where right. you can help make really important change that sort of needs to be happening right now. Yeah. I mean, it, it's 
I guess I'm, I often look at the work that I do from the perspective of what I felt was lacking for me when I was in my mm. like formative years. And in my formative years, I wanted to see a million and one foundation shades. Yeah, at of course. <laughs> and I wanted to see, you know, women with my skin tone or with like my facial features mm. on the windows of Maya and on TV and all of that. And now you um, see your own face. Right. And it's like, okay, <laughs> look, hey, universe, I didn't mean literally me. <laughs> Oh, but well. sure. They listen. Sure. Someone listen. Right. So there is like, I guess, yeah, there, there is like a leadership role that I've fallen into in some ways. And it's it's weird. Yeah, because how old are you? I'm 27. Well, that's pretty young. <laughs> like, that's pretty amazing to have your, you know, your shit together enough to be able to. I wouldn't say all that. <laughs> well, from the outset, you, right. you look like you do. So don't don't dwell on the other bits because that's just normal. But it does, I think it's pretty amazing to be able to articulate that and also do that, mm. you know, as part of, and also to make it part of your practice, which I think you're slowly sort of blending it into what you make and do, which yeah. maybe you could talk a bit more about. Like I know about your self-portrait works, mm-hmm. but I also know about your hand-coloured works, mm-hmm. which are sort of the quieter side of your practice, mm. aren't they? Yeah. But do you want to talk a bit about that? About the hand-coloured yeah. works? Yeah. I guess um, when I first sort of started making, I guess, the body of work that I'm building from now, it was mostly about being, I guess, aggressive, I suppose, in in, in my desires and in what I see as beautiful and what I see as necessary, mm. which was those really bright, colourful um, portraits of my friends um, in sort of the traditional kind of colonial or post-colonial African studio photography style. And um, the fabrics and yeah, the textures. Very, and, yeah, very that, very yeah. Malik Sidave, all of that, which I love Really still. lush and beautiful. Super yeah. lush. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that was built on a foundation of my own research into art from outside of like, you know, the, the Eurocentric lens because I went into art school kind of naively thinking that <laughs> they teach you that right I, I know like now it's like silly girl <laughs> but at uh, the time you know being 19 and and mostly because so when I finished high school I went to study architecture and I was like gonna be an architect and then I realized really quickly that I don't have any mathematical skill whatsoever oh, and I had ouch. to drop yeah. out <laughs> it's so bad I was yeah. so bad um and one of my architecture lecturers told not told me but really encouraged me to go to art school or to think about it because you know he was like you clearly enjoy this aspect of it but mm. n- the the 90% aspect that you don't like Different is thinking. the most important <laughs> so maybe dwell on this you know artistic side anyway yeah. so I went to art school at 19 went to SCA and was like, oh, this is going to be everything that I didn't have in architecture. It's going to be free. It's going to be informative. It's going to embrace me and da 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 da. Um, <laughs> but it's academia, and all academia is flawed to and some and pretty limited in terms of. I mean, even even just as a woman, let alone yeah. a woman of color, mm-hmm. like what you learn, what I learned at art school, which I mean, hopefully is changing now. But I remember back then just going, wow, mm. this is um pretty limited. You know, I mean, it is changing. A little bit from, yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely more, like, students get more of a voice, so I feel like students can really lead the direction in some ways. And I like can only ask speak. for things. Right, yeah, yeah. right, or, like, call out to their lecturers yeah. in, yeah. But even, even then it was like, okay, cool, cool, now we've, like, embraced the importance of feminism 
uh, yes, that's really great. Uh, mm. But like, why are all these women white? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why are we kind of replicating, uh, you know, the kind of male-dominated Eurocentric totally. art gaze lens? But now just with women. Right. Yeah. Like it's not much of it. We've gone sideways rather than forward. Um, so I had to do a shit ton of my own research, which I'm really grateful for because yeah. I think it made me really empowered and made me kind of learn to speak for myself. Well, also, I think when you when you seek that information out, it's usually stuff that it's a different type of learning. It's not put in front of you. You've right. you've, you've dug it. You know, you've sit, you've sorted out. So usually, you're quite passionate about what yeah, you found. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So that, and then the bright portraits, and then I, I think what made me want to do something quieter with the hand coloured works was mm. that a lot of the conversation that came up around the the bright portraits that I'd done was about like re reclaiming and this kind of language that wasn't what I wanted in the sense mm. that it was still kind of centering the colonial gaze and centering this sort of othering gaze. And I felt that people were like looking at my friends and looking at them as like subjects of mm. a colonial era, which wow. was so not what I intended, but also like, you know, that intention doesn't really matter in art, um, but and it made me really get think right. yeah. about, you know, what other conversations do I want to have? Mm. Um, especially with this like reclaiming thing that kept popping up. Um, and so I went to, I, I don't know, I guess like when I first was researching, you know, black art or African art specifically, the, the, the or African photography, the works that came up first were like these uh, ethnographic photographs taken by like, you know, these colonial men, of black people in a very specific lens. Yep. Um, I know what you mean. Yeah, and it <laughs> felt like the works that I had made were kind of positioned in that same lens, which yeah. was really, really interesting. Mm. Um, and so I was like, let me reclaim them. Let yeah, me do yeah. this thing and let me take these works by these, you know, white colonial men of people that look like me yeah, and reclaim them. But in a real kind of gentle kind of holding hmm. way. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that comes from as well growing up when we had like all these photographs at home and mum would paint over them when they'd scratch or whatever. Oh, we'll fix them up. Yeah, she'd paint and it looked so bad because, you know, <laughs> she <laughs> she's she's not an artist but she is an artist, um, but she'd use like a blue um, like marker wow. to colour in people's skin or if someone had died as well, culturally you, you scratch out their face in photographs. Really? Yeah, because you're not, like it's just not good. To keep it around. To have representations of a person. And this kind of goes back to something that I said at an artist talk that someone reminded me of, um, how like when we talk about, you know, col- colonised people, I should say, mm. um, and photography, often there's that whole weird thing of, you know, oh, the natives, yeah. in quotations, yeah. um, are too scared to have their photos taken because, you know, they think that their soul will be taken. Yeah, which I always thought that can't, I mean, that's right. just our fucked up version of what's actually going on, isn't it? But I feel like there's like a mm, element of truth in that, in that <laughs> it's not necessarily like I'm scared that you'll take my literal soul, but it's mm. like from history and knowing what others and outsiders have done to us historically. Mm. I like you, you, the photograph, when you take a photo of someone, like you, you kind of 
hold onto a representation of them mm. and you kind of have a lot of power as a photographer to manipulate that however you want, which That's has true. led to a lot of really like dangerous representations yeah. of, you know, black people. Of course. Um, and so that fear of the soul being taken, I feel like, is super duper valid because look that's what has happened. It. Yeah, that's you true. Know? That's true. And misuse and yeah. And, yeah and, any, and even just slight cropping and framing totally. and lighting. Yeah, totally. It's, photography is so powerful, yeah. especially in the colonial era. Um, and, I mean, we're still in the colonial era. <laughs> yeah, we are. And, but am I, am I right in hearing or thinking that your grandfather was a photographer or it was your grandfather? My dad. Oh, your dad. My dad. Right. My dad. This is actually quite new to me, which is silly, because he's a journalist. He's a really, really, really famous, world-famous journalist. And he's really good. Um, and he's like a political, uh, yeah, political journalist. And he's also a writer and author. Like, he's very, very intelligent. Mm. He's the smartest person I know. Mm. Um, and he's he... He kind of documented the conflict in the war in the early late eighties, early nineties um, in Sudan. In Sudan, yeah, mm. in in South Sudan, and a lot of that documentation was with photography as well. Um, and because we, you know, family lost absolutely everything during the war, he doesn't have those photographs anymore. But oh. every now and then, oh. because of social media, somebody will be like, like recently, somebody published a book. Mm. Um, about the conflict in South Sudan and about, um, you know, the rise of this very, very intricate and kind of complicated political system. And the cover of it was this photo of Salva Kiir, who is the current president of South Sudan. And my dad, he came to Melbourne and he went to a friend's house and I went to visit him there and he had this copy of this book and he was like really upset about it. I'm like, this is a beautiful photo what are you talking about he's like this is my photo <gasps> so his I took photo, this photo had ended up in the hands of someone else right and through the conflict he lost the copy of it right but then, and, and they claimed person, it and not only did they claim and claim his photograph he, they had like he was really upset because in the original photo there was like hundreds of soldiers behind him in the in the background but they'd cropped that out and put mountains in <laughs> And he was like, this isn't right, this isn't wow. right. So, again, you know, photography is really powerful and you can yeah. manipulate No hands of wrong people. Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah, you can. And I guess, well, then that makes sense, the hand colouring or mm. it's almost like that sort of rich, making something richer than it is. Totally. Like, or, or filling in the gaps. Well, it's also like I feel that history, not just my own history, but all of history has been super-duper inaccessible to me from for a long time and that's intentional like there is a reason that people like me have been denied access to their own histories and to broader history do you mean by your parents or by by society (laughs) by society because it's traumatic or because Because it's 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 almost like if you know we're presented a side of history or, or, or a version of history that paints our struggles and i by ours i mean people of color in general mm. as less intense and less valid than they really are um like even here and the way that like first nations peoples are presented historically like when i first moved to this country i didn't even know that there were black people in australia that's crazy and i didn't know all the way through primary school up until about high school and that's not an accident you know like that's totally and there were people there were first nations peoples in my school you know but you weren't taught that right it was like oh they must they must also be refugees like me yeah Um, i mean i do think i think that's changing now having two young kids in primary school, like mm. state system, I think that it 
it's really different now. Mm. It is definitely different, but maybe demographically it's not. Like maybe there are still some areas where it's just still hidden or just not or just you know, swept over yeah. pretty quickly. But now yeah. they're all fairly, you know, like my kids go on tours of the Merry Creek with with uncles and, like, they learn how to write their own sort of acknowledgement of that, all that stuff, which I'm super happy about. But as a kid, I don't, I mean, my I was just lucky that I guess I sorted out myself yeah. or, or learnt, wanted to learn about my family and my history, which mm. was, you know, intricately involved in that because mm. I'm white Australian. But... But I guess there are still patches where, yeah, it's crazy to think you could come from another country and not know there's first totally. nation people here. Well, there's any time I've been <laughs> overseas, and especially in the states, and they're like, "Oh, are you are you British?" And it's like, "No, no, no, no." Like I've grown up in Australia, and they're like, "There's black people in Australia." <laughs> I'm like, "Yes," and they're not all like migrants. They're not all migrants either. Like it's just this wow perception. Of right. What is Australian? Australia it's- is mm. is you know, neighbours and it's home and away, which is really sad. It's um, so sad. But, yeah, I, I do feel that history, my own history, has been denied me. Mm. Um, and so these kind of hand-coloured works and the, the delicateness, I guess, I approach mm. those with is this sort of not just reclaiming those photographs and weird ethnographic representations of black people, but reclaiming like an ownership of history, like that history belongs to me too and, I, and I'm and i part of it. Like yeah. it's not this thing that I can look back on, it's this thing that is in my cells and in my DNA and will continue onwards. Um, so there's a delicateness, I guess, to that. Yeah, and I guess it's like putting your own layer on top of mm. those layers that have already been created. Yeah. So like the the new culture, signing tying it the together. registry of history. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was here. A tongue was here. You're signing it pretty visually, <laughs> like loudly. I don't think anyone could no- not notice that you're here. That's for sure. On that, I mean, just talking about that way that I guess your culture is represented in the mainstream media and I mean from from knowing you and knowing other people from South Sudan I I, I'm just like they're incredible people amazing everyone I've ever met is so beautiful and but recently you know our past prime minister we can call him the ex-prime minister now (laughs) you know I was just gobsmacked when when he did that like thinking Mm. that even though I don't like him particularly but think I I assumed he was a sort of cultured, civilised person that wouldn't would realise that saying something like that, talking about what I can't remember the exact terminology, but he said African gangs. Mm. I think in a, in a media release, um, I was shocked, and I can only imagine that you you would have been just sort of furious. Honestly, yeah. I, I was not shocked as well. And mm. I think it's really great that you bring that up because I feel like there is this idea that only bad people are racist mm. and only uncultured, un you know, civilised, yeah. in quotations people are racist. But I think the thing that you learn super duper intimately <laughs> as a black person growing up, especially in inner city, is that everybody can be, <laughs> everybody can be and is mm. and has to kind of do continual work to unlearn that, unlearn mm. all of our biases because it's not – I feel like often we, we villainise people who do and say racist things as though, you know, it's intrinsically a bad person thing. Um, mm. But, I mean, a lot of my teachers throughout all school from, mm. you know, kindergarten through to university yeah. who were really great, educated, amazing people still messed up and said and did really bad things 
or not really bad, really racist things. Um, and like my friends have done that and, you know, friends, partners, and I've done and said really racist things. And, you know, like, it's just, yeah. I feel like we need to change the, the, the way that we speak about racism, mm. especially because it informs like the political landscape as has happened. Mm. Um, and the media really leeches onto like this narrative that kind of excuses and pardons everyday racism to focus on like, you know, the person who's going out and attacking black people because they hate black people. Yeah. And then everything that happens underneath that is sort of, you know, it's let go because that's a good person. Or whatever. And it's- but it's also that kind of thing where they sort of forgive it by saying, but they're criminals, but there's crime. Right. But it's like you never see in a headline um, Caucasian white Australian kills his partner and child. Totally. You never see that listed. So why on earth do we see, you know? I think it's just a really easy scapegoat because it kind of, especially like, you know, in the midst of elections and everything, it's mm. like if we can make you believe that this is the most pressing issue, hmm. then you we can kind of, mm. you know, get away with not actually taking care of really serious things. Like no one's talking about the detention centres. No one's talking about what's going on there. and. Yeah. That's a state of emergency, not young South Sudanese people who are committing crimes or whatever, mm. um, especially when it's not a state of emergency, when it's a very minuscule number. And <laughs> like I feel like, you know, a lot of people were talking about this whole South Sudanese gang situation um, in relation to the ways that other migrant communities in the past have been villainized. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a wave and it will come in and it will go. And it's happened to these other yeah, like migrant Vietnamese communities. Or, totally. Yeah. And it has. But I'm also sceptical about the ways that it will go <laughs> because those communities, aside from, I suppose, the Vietnamese community, but even then it's slightly different. But those communities, for the most part, were not as hyper-visible. Mm. And it's it's not a coincidence that it is specifically South Sudanese people who are, like, probably the most kind of Do you mean visibly, easily identifiable? Right, right. right. Yeah. Like, the most kind of visibly different community of people um, mm. that have migrated to Australia. And it's, like, I think that that needs to be spoken about. Like, it's not... Yeah. It's not the same I think um as you know Greek or Italian migration it's quite different yeah um but also I don't know I feel I just there's a there's a lot (laughs) but does that affect you directly like that kind of when that sort of blew up in the media and which is really now a couple Mm. months ago I guess it's always there though I mean as long as Alan Jones is on air it's like Mm. why why but anyway that's another um does that affect you directly? Like, do you see the ricochets of that from totally. other people, from strangers? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Especially, like, um, when I have the audacity <laughs> to leave the inner city. <laughs> like, how dare you get on the V-line? Oh. Which is so... It's just, yeah, there's definitely... Like, I've had comments and remarks, and especially out at night when people are, you know, emboldened by alcohol. Yep. Um, but also... That's always been present. I think now people just have a, a language that they can use to to attack me with. Like, but in how the do past, you respond to that? Like, I can't even imagine. Like, like, it depends how much time I have in yeah. the day. Yeah. It really does. Um, and it depends how, you know, much emotional energy I have yeah. to spare that day. Because some days I'm just like, I'm too tired to deal with this. Yeah. 
or, you know, I'm too emotional, whatever. And other days it's like, I've actually got a lot of time, you know, like I'm, I'm early for my meeting. So let let's, me educate let's, you. Let's go there. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, it's not new. I mean, things like this have been happening behind the scenes for as long as I've been in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, what's new is just the language that has kind of given people permission to be that vocal mm. with their racism publicly. Which has happened, I mean, not just with black people, but it's happened with all sorts of, I mean, bigotry mm. just in general has yeah. uh, has kind of gone crazy mm-hmm. lately. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's when it, that whole freedom of speech and just the fact that the Australian patriots can, or whatever mm-hmm. they're called, the united front of assholes, I call them. <laughs> like what? <laughs> just the fact that they can even broadcast their opinions yeah. without having any you know, repercussions. Well, it reminds me a lot of the Cronulla riot situation, yeah. which I, I, yeah, I lived in New South Wales at the time, so that was very kind of like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And also back when I lived on the, you know, Central Coast, Lower Hunter Valley region, mm-hmm. there was this huge push from the local community to remove, because a lot of South Sudanese refugees were kind of located in that region, which mm-hmm. is real strange. And we were kind yeah, of like, I, I don't know, like lots of... Lots of, I guess they had spaces in their public schools yeah. there or something. Yeah. Um. I don't. I mean, you know, I don't feel terrible about growing up there, but I'm still like, why? Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. The local. I think this was like early two thousands. The local community kind of petitioned to have South Sudanese refugees removed from the Hunter Valley, and I remember it's so on weird. what grounds? Just because there was too many of us. There was oh, not. Don't want to be outnumbered. But, so in Newcastle, Newcastle <laughs> was like about an hour and a half away from us by train. Yeah. And then Sydney was about two hours and a bit away from us by train. So we were kind of in between and there was no other South Sudanese community at all except for my immediate family. Like there was no other, at the time, Mm. no other black people that I knew of in the Central Coast. Mm. There might have been one or two, but I (laughs) never saw them kind of thing. Whereas in Newcastle there was a handful of families um, who were located, because we got there real early, 1997 was when my family migrated. That is quite early, isn't it? As far as I knew, there was one other family. Wow. And that was my cousin. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, yeah, so I grew up there. You know, I was yeah. five years old when we moved to the Central Coast, you know, learnt the language at the same time as everyone. So I was really super yeah, duper in that culture in, 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 and, like, felt really kind of assimilated. Mm. Um, and I used to catch the train. I'd get off at um, Narara sta- train station and sometimes if I wanted to go up shopping, I'd go to Gosford train station and da-da-da-da. And I remember, like, I'd go to the cafeteria there, the little canteen, and get my little sandwich or, like, my little <laughs> lolly bag for $1.50 or whatever. Mm. Um, and they knew me well. Like, I'd grown up there. You yeah. know, by this time I would have been, like, maybe 12, 13. So I'd been there for wow. a long time. Um, and I remember go- going there to get my little lolly bag and the woman at the canteen was, like do you want to sign this petition? And I was like, yeah, sure, Jan, or whatever her name is. <laughs> like, went to sign the petition. I'm like, let yeah. me read it before I sign it. You are and kidding. And I read it and it was like, you know, we're asking the local government to, you know, stop letting South Sudanese or like Africans or whatever migrate here and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, Did Jan what? even know what and she was, was giving like, you to sign? What? No, Jan, <laughs> I don't want to sign this. And she's like, oh, but it's very important for our community. And it's just like, like there's just this real intense Whoa. cognitive dissonance of like, you aren't that threat because I know you personally. Because I've bought lollies off you every right. week. Like, so it's weird. just, And then the same thing happened maybe five years later or maybe ten years later with, um, with Muslim people yeah. and they wanted to ban the hijab. 
it was just this weird thing of, like, they don't, they just didn't see me or my immediate family as part of this community because they'd gotten to know us, which is so weird and wild. And I, I often people say, like, you know, this is why you should befriend racist peoples because once they get to know you, they'll stop being racist. And it's like, at, oh. my, at my loss, you know, they benefit and I completely, you know, yeah. have to push aside my human feelings of discomfort and, like, you know, all of that. But, oh, yeah, that's... It's just so crazy that people can't think that through before passing it to you and thinking that no. that, that you'll just... Uh, mm. Anyway, let's talk about something else for a little while. <laughs> um, recently you have been in New York. Yes. And... It looked really fun. I only saw from afar, so <laughs> as a follower, it always looked fun. But um, can you tell me what you were doing in New York? I was on residency at Lightwork in Syracuse, which is a really cool photo lab gallery oh, space, um, which is really amazing. Um, yeah, they have this artist-in-residency program, which is really 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 cool yeah and Syracuse is a really cool place it was really wild because um so I applied because a friend of mine mentioned it somewhere on the internet and I was like I've never done a international residency oh haven't you is that your first it's my my first like residency ever actually and I was like let me see what it's you know what it's all about so I applied and forgot about it and then um at that time (laughs) at that time I was actually working at the place that shall not be named. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> and Voldemort. I was just having <laughs> relatively a pretty terrible time just yeah. with my own mental health and my physical health at the time. Um, and, yeah, just was doing these door shifts and saved up all my money to go visit my friends in Fiji just to, like, get away. Yeah. And flights were so cheap at the time. I think it was, like, a 600 return or something. And so I went to Fiji and I was having – I was such a drag on my friends. I feel really sorry for them. <laughs> <laughs> we were, like, in this beautiful island paradise with all these, like – like, where I was staying with my friend Eli, he outside of my window was, like, a fresh pawpaw tree and, like, banana trees wow. and, like, just in the middle of paradise. But you were really – just in bed all day like <laughs> Eli closed the curtains <laughs> like it was just a really terrible time um and then I just kind of had this breakdown because I just didn't know what I was doing and I was just really unwell and I'd been off my medication which was a silly idea mm. and da 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 and then I got an email and it was like hey you got it you've got it and I'm <laughs> like oh going to New York bye well because I was like <laughs> I think I should just live in Fiji <laughs> I should just live here with my friends who will take care of me. I wasn't going to do anything in Fiji. I just was being looked after by my, by oh. my really good friends. And I was like, oh, shit. Now I've got to now go I've back to my yeah. life. So it wasn't like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm really excited. I was just like. I'm so glad you got uh, it because otherwise we could have lost you I to know. just eating pawpaws so in close. bed forever. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, yeah, I did the whole thing and it was really beautiful. It was such a beautiful experience because I kind of didn't know what works I wanted to create there. I just knew that I wanted to inject myself into the community in Syracuse as much as possible, whatever that community was. Did you have friends there? No. Oh, didn't, wow. didn't have any mates there at all. But as soon as I got there, I sort of did a little bit of research mm. just to kind of gauge what kind of community was there. And it was like, it's a college town, mm-hmm. um, but it was summer, so there was no one there. All oh. the kids were, like, with their family. So it was just an empty town for the most part. And then I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I guess I'll do self-portraits then. <laughs> Um, but you didn't just do self-portraits, no. did so you? No. So my 
I, I got like picked up by um one of the people from the gallery who was really lovely and got taken to the apartment, had dinner, all this nice stuff. And then the next day I was like, let me explore a little bit. Um, and I wanted to, there's a place there, a mall called Destiny USA. <laughs> and it's just like an ode to capitalism. Like it's <gasps> huge, the biggest mall I've ever been to in my entire, like it was the size of maybe Carlton. Like it was huge. <laughs> maybe indoor. I'm exaggerating, but it was <laughs> huge. Like I was there for about six hours the wow. first day and I only explored like a quarter of the first floor like it was They're huge. Their or something else aren't so they? So scary. Yeah. Um, and then I, it was like late, no buses so I had to get an Uber. My Uber driver back to the apartment was a South Sudanese guy oh. and I was like oh hey and then we spoke in our language Dinka and I was like are there other South Sudanese people here and he's like yeah. Where are they? <laughs> everywhere. Like, come to church. And I was like, okay. So I got his number, and then church was like three days later on a Sunday. And I went to church, took my camera, yeah. and there was a whole bunch of South Sudanese kids playing basketball in like the church gym. And there was this huge, huge South Sudanese community there. Huh who I befriended and cool. I hung out with them. And then the youth leader was a young-ish man with a family named Bung and he invited me to have lunch with his family and Aww. I met his wife and his kids. And it was just like... So cool. The universe wants me to be happy. That's <laughs> like, so good. It was good. really lovely. And so you shot lots of portraits of those people you I met. did, And yeah. then was there a second... Were you, were you introduced by them to other... Yeah. yeah. And then I met all these young kids there um, who I'm friends with on Facebook now um, and kids my own age as well and... There was this big refugee celebration day that they had at the park there in Syracuse. And I went there the day before I went to Toronto and it was just like, oh, hmm. my God. Like, That's amazing. So many South Sudanese people. It was just weird because um, Bung was speaking to me about the issues that they're having in the community with the way that a lot of their young men were being profiled by police. and a lot Similar of, thing. And I was like, whoa. It happens everywhere. <laughs> this is so intense. Mm. Um, it does happen everywhere and it was literally the same narrative as what I've become accustomed to here in Melbourne and what I knew in Sydney and what I knew in Newcastle. And it kind of really changed my perspective on the way that I guess me as a South Sudanese woman and someone who's super duper proud of my people and my culture, like just the way that we navigate the world or cannot navigate the world and how kind of, how much broader it is than, than just my local community. Um, And it's almost like you then, I mean, because of the internet now and the connection that we can form globally, Mm. you you can, that that community is spread around the world, Mm. but you can essentially be working within that, with all all of those South Sudanese communities. Yeah. And sort of either documenting that, or is that something you'd like to keep doing? Oh, totally. So where's next? Oh, I really want to go to the UK. Yeah, I was going to say. I've heard that there's a South Sudanese, um, South Sudanese Scottish community. Oh, amazing. So that's, that's. I have friends in Scotland. Wow, you got my number. <laughs> totally. I'm going to have to do I that. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I've just, since being in Syracuse, there's this real kind of, I don't want to say maternal because that sounds kind of, I don't know, condescending, mm. but something, a nurturing kind of sense of responsibility towards Mm. my community because I guess for a lot of people the way that I represent my community will be the first their first contact or their first kind of view or perception of South Sudanese people Mm. and I feel like oh I have to really take care but you are like I don't think you should put too much pressure on yourself because just essentially because of who you are you're doing a good job at that and that's also why you are that you know Mm. like it goes both ways but don't don't (laughs) Don't give yourself a nervous breakdown over no, it. It's like no. you're, I just you're, care a lot. Yeah. I just care a lot. You're a great represent, 
representative. So I actually wanted to talk about um, just something about those works. So mm. I, when you came back from New York, the the billboards that are on um, Bakehouse Studios at mm. the moment, uh, probably not when this goes to air, but are they shots that you took in Syracuse? Yeah, yeah, yeah they are. Um, yeah, they were of two of. So one of the young men in it, the one that's kind of, I think he's got like a Nike sweater. I yeah. couldn't catch his name because I met him at the park oh. and he was like, <laughs> he was like, I was like, can I take your photo? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it now. Is that okay? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. And I took his photo and he's like, can I see it? And I showed it to him and he's like, you can tell I'm stoned, can't you? And he just <laughs> ran away. <laughs> But his sister was there and I was like, can you just, like, get him to, like, send me, yeah, just confirmation that I can use this. Um, So I didn't catch his name, but the other guy is Rin and he is um, one of the young kind of youth leaders from the church who teaches the younger, younger kids basketball. And then the other two were two of the younger kids as well. Um, So that was all from, like, the first day that I met them. And how do you feel about, um, because I've actually done that billboard as well Mm. um, on Hoddle Street and it is a high traffic area. And for me, um, something changed after I did that billboard, like just seeing work huge. Is um, is that happened, this thing of scale sort of, how does that affect your work? When, after they were plastered up and I sort of stepped back and looked at them, it was like, well, I really care about these works. Mm. And it's, I don't know. And also just this kind of, I don't think I've ever had my works that big before. Mm. Um, but it, yeah, it just feels really kind of very real mm. and surreal. Um, especially the intimate connection that I have with the people in the portraits. It was, it's very kind of, I was a bit emotional, I think. Mm. A little bit emotional. Did you send, nice. did you document it and send yeah, it to them? Yeah, I did. And I tagged them in Facebook oh, and they great. were like, well done. Now can you send me the rest of the photos? <laughs> Fine. So I can use them yeah. on my Instagram. So it was really because uh, I'd sent them the initial works, but they were like, we took like 20 <laughs> photos. Can I have all 20 of them? And I'm like, uh, you know what? Sure. That's, sure. But that's, I mean, that's just showing that they think they're awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's a and compliment. It was just this weird thing of, um, yeah, just feeling, feeling like really feeling the connection, this international mm. connection. And then, yeah, That's so cool because yeah. as soon as I saw them, I was like driving past, I was like, oh, my God, I bet you there are tongs. <laughs> and then saw it somewhere online. But it is amazing that first step of doing something huge because mm. the same thing happened to me and now I just want to do, I just want to do huge right. things. Yeah. But I think there's that sort of, I guess, the visibility thing as well of, mm. of making people's faces something that I guess advertising does all the time. Yeah, but, yeah. And and the other thing I did want to talk to you about is that's close to that, I guess, is is fashion mm. and where you see in the future whether, you know, like it's something that I could probably see you going into, but I don't want to tell you what your future is. So You're not the first person <laughs> to say that actually. I think the first time we I had that conversation was with um uh when I so my first international show was at Red Hook Labs in Brooklyn, New York. And I got to go there. It was a really, really great time. And they were all like, so like you do fashion photography, right? And I was like, no, I don't. It's art. It's art. (laughs) So good. As if there's like a, you know. Difference. Distinction. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And since then that kind of seed has been planted. Mm. And I don't know, like I'm open to it. I feel like, I feel like there definitely is like an element of fashion for sure, in the sense that, like, I love to style my shoots in this mm. kind of really kind of 
specific way. Um, and yeah. it's very, it definitely speaks the language of fashion, whether yeah. it, maybe that's unconscious, but it's. Mm. Now that you bring it up, actually, it's really interesting because I never thought about this, but when I was, so I started, when I went to art school, I started, uh, I studied painting. So mm-hmm. that's what I, I was a painter. Yeah. And I did this sort of like rural traditional oil paintings, um, still portraiture though, but I think that definitely informed the way that I approach photography. But before art school, when mm. I was, you know, a really kind of overworked architecture student, mm. I used to have, I used to collect fashion magazines, mm. like all these, not Australian Vogue for some reason. I think it was more expensive or something. <laughs> no doubt. But on eBay, I could get like Brazilian Vogue and Italian Vogue huh. for like $2 or something. And I used to get them. And uh, my best friend in high school at the time, Eleanor, she was also super into fashion, introduced me to all these fashion blogs. And we used to just sit in each other's bedrooms and just look through fashion hmm. blogs and like cut out pictures of models and things. Um, so yeah. I guess like the way that, I approach fashion, uh, photography probably comes from that, um, yeah. especially like the angles and mm. yeah, the way that I make people pose. It's quite yeah. a subtle thing though, because mm. when you start to try and unpack what that is, the language of fashion, it's very difficult to sort of to pinpoint it. Yeah, totally. yeah, but it's it is there. It mm. is there. And even with the Mecca sort of project, I guess, is like you're putting yourself in into that world mm. as well, uh, even though it's definitely an art project. That I think that's something about your practice that I'm quite interested in mm. and, and everyone we've sort of spoken to has this multifaceted sort of um, approach and isn't scared of going in between worlds or creating a new sort of aspect. But but on that, often why people do that is to earn a living. Mm. So is that mm-hmm. something that like how do you think about earning a living within your practice? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you, or, you, or you don't. No, I think about it every single day because mm. my mum won't let me stop thinking about it. Yeah. She's like, this is cool, like this is a great hobby, but, like, you know, what's what's your career going to be? And I'm like, yeah. yeah, I do think about that a lot and I think, I don't know, I, I often don't worry about it because mm. there's this kind of, I don't know, I don't know if it's just like a naivety thing, but it feels like that a lot of careers are yet to be invented and a lot of totally. sort of you know, what it means to da 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 like I think a that's of... a great way to think right. about it. And so I I'm think, just yeah. really focused on getting good at things that I am trying to get good yeah. at and then... You'll create the career, right. yeah. But, and, um... it, and you're 27, so it's definitely, you know, like it, it is something that I think people feel like they're forced to choose. Mm. This is how I make my money. This is my art, whatever. Mm. But I think you're right in saying if you just keep doing what you do that that will it will essentially gravitate around the things that you do and the people pay you to do it eventually but I mean you could easily teach or I'm surprised do you already teach no I mean yeah the doors are open the doors are all open (laughs) totally but then but then I mean this might sound a bit crazy but even like in terms of politics Mm. is there (laughs) is that anything you would consider my dad was a politician Mm. he was um up until Less than 10 years ago, he was the uh, Minister for Communications, I think, in South Sudan. Wow. Um, and my grandfather is a politician, my mum's dad. So my family is super-duper political. My mum yeah. was also super political. She was in, like, the rebel army. Really? Yeah, in South Sudan at my age. Before, or just younger than me, actually. She was, That's like, amazing. in her army gear with, like, an AK-47 or Do something. Do you have photos of that? They're all gone, but she still has... 
she, yeah, she, I remember one day she was like, oh, yes, back in my army days, I could, you know, take apart and put back together an AK-47 less than a minute. <gasps> Your mum. And she's like, do you know where the sugar is? And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Um, yeah, so I've got wow. a very, very political family and I think I'm afraid of politics because mm. it's just I'm super, I take things personally, you know. I would yeah. be a terrible politician because I'd cry all the time. But I don't think that would make a terrible politician. Why do people assume that would politician. make a, it would make a really good politician? True, an honest one at the very least. Yeah. yeah, and I think, I mean, not to be too prescribed, but I think that already by what you're doing it's political anyway. Totally, like, totally. And essentially these days the better politicians are actually people that aren't politicians, mm. if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think that the area of politics is so problematic in mm. our country. Mm. But the way that what seems to be happening is that the real politics is kind of forming around mm-hmm. it. And I, you know, I hate to say it, but you seem to be sort of like at the centre of it so <laughs> already. So who knows? That might be. You should start like, I don't know, join yeah, them. I'm like writing things on my head. Okay, politician, <laughs> fashion, fashion photographer. <laughs> You're already all of them anyway. So um, I guess, yeah, I think we're probably coming towards the end of it. But one thing I just, when I thought about... I mean, all the conversations I've been having, but particularly with you, when you make work or choose to to do things or um, make decisions in your life or practice, do you think about um, a legacy? As in a personal legacy? Yeah. I don't know. That's a really interesting question. I guess, oh, yes, in the sense that I think about like the a pre-existing legacy. I've, I guess, what I mean by that is like, you know, I've become super duper attached to this like African art history story. Mm. Um, And I'm really, really invested in not necessarily creating something like new and profound and different, but like in attaching myself to that, to that legacy, Mm. I suppose. And like, you know, these are the African photographers and artists and that are, that I didn't have access to that I've now become really, really attached to. And I want to be part of that, but I've never really thought about, it outside of that. Yeah, because, I mean, you, I think you essentially will be part of that just by who you are. But then beyond that, it's sort of like you seem to have this opportunity now, being so young and being in that position, to create another legacy, you know, mm. that is and, – and I think especially being in this country mm-hmm. as well, that's quite kind of important and, yeah, I think about it sometimes. But I often think as artists, like, what is it that we're trying to – that mm. isn't just like fashion photography or isn't just politics. It's something yeah. else that we're trying to do and it's something about how we're remembered after we die. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I guess it's like that a tongue was here thing, scratching yeah. your name onto the mystical eternal desk. Oh. And I guess I would I if if I had a choice in how I was remembered, I think I'd want to be remembered as someone who just really cared mm, that's very more sweet. than anything else. Oh, that's been so lovely. I think we should end on that note. <laughs> Thanks so much, Atong, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. I love it how early on in the conversation Atong says, if you want something done right, do it yourself. She exudes such a great confidence and presence, but just below the surface is a real sense of doubt. How can this be? 
Atong outlines the very real issue for a lot of first-generation Australians in that she experiences a sense of lack of trust in herself because she's grown up in an environment that questions her intentions. This lack of trust shown towards her people seems to have somehow unconsciously rubbed off on her, so she questions herself. It's a result of what she describes as living in a place that doesn't recognise her existence. She has such rich stories of fitting in, not just in terms of where she lived, but also in terms of her practice, starting in architecture and finding her way to her own place, sitting somewhere between a whole lot of careers, which gives her a kind of robust power and edge. As she so aptly says, a lot of careers are yet to be invented. Her reminders on the issue of racism are so powerful. The idea that not only bad people are racist, that a lot of casual racism propagated by good people still goes on, relatively hidden, every day. Once again, one of these conversations touches on the power of language and the weight of our words. Atong is asking if only we can all attempt to unlearn our biases and recolour our own histories. This conversation was hosted by me, Ty Snape. I'm an artist for those of you who don't know my work. I'm actually making a series of artworks inspired by each of these conversations. The first iteration was shown recently at Sarah Scout Presents. The exhibition's over now, but you can see the documentation on my website. For more information about the project and the artists I'm speaking to, head to tysnaith.com. Thanks to my audio producer, Beck Fari, and Melbourne musician Fia, spelt P-H-I-A, for letting us use this track, End of the Day, from her album, The Ocean of Everything. This podcast was originally conceived as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. This second season and the exhibition is supported by the Australia Council for the Arts.